Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic here with Aaron Cameron, live at the Toronto Real Estate Forum, day two. We've been talking about real estate a lot the last couple of days, and we've got uh, another 30 minutes here. We're going to do more of the same. This is part of our speaker video series. Our sponsors for this episode are Dal Vukovic, ML Imperial Properties, Rycom, and Turner and Townsend. More importantly, we do have a guest, Paul Morissuti, chairman, Canada CBRE. Paul recently was promoted to the role of chairman and he just demanded to come on the podcast to talk about his uh, recent success. <laughs> it was actually yep. conditional as part of the acceptance of the offer. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, Paul. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. I think the fact that I'm here has more to do with George Prisbolowski pulling me over than announcing a new title, but thank you very much for that. He's, he's good at that. <laughs> he's, he's very, he's good, very at that. good at I'll it. I'll pretend you didn't say that. I'll yeah. assume it was because of the need, desire to be on the podcast. CBRE. Everybody knows CBRE, but we will we will cover a little bit uh, who they are. But let's talk about the man first. Paul, where does your journey in real estate begin? Well, that's a good question. I would start by saying it is kind of in my blood and in my DNA. So I'm, I'm not I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the 1920s, but my grandfather came here in the 1920s from from Italy, both sides of my family. My grandfather began as a bricklayer and then began building houses and then began building some more stuff. And my father was in real estate. My two older brothers are in real estate. My extended family is in real estate. I've got a whole bunch of uncles who are developers. I've got nephews now who are developers. So it's something that we kind of grew up with. I began my journey when I came out of university. My older brother, Larry Morissuti, who was a, an accountant by background, had started a boutique company called the Morissuti Group. And that company invested in real estate. It did a little bit of development, but it had a consulting arm. And that consulting arm was largely appraisal and advisory work. The genesis of, of RealNet started at that company. We used to produce these Morissuti books that were basically just books of comparable sales. When I first began with my brother, I had to make a decision about what part of the industry I wanted to be in. I never had any huge desire to go into sales for a whole bunch of reasons. And with, with the consulting arm, I felt that it was a piece of the business that because the market changed literally monthly, it was always evolving. You had to learn new things, new tricks, new, you know, new understandings of the market continually. And that appealed to me. You could be rewarded very quickly based on how hard you worked and how well you did and how, how well you absorbed all the information that you need to do that kind of work. So I gravitated to sort of the appraisal and consulting field. And 30 years later, I'm still doing it. I had, I think, 11 or maybe 12 years at the Altus Group. And when I joined Altus, it was a small company, small number of partners. We knitted together comparable best-in-class companies across Canada. And then Altus went public in 2005. I ultimately left Altus, came to CBRE. And at CBRE, I think what, what really appealed to me was, number one, the management team, all of whom I had known my entire career, John O'Brien, who has been sort of an informal mentor to me for a long time, was at CBRE. The platform really intrigued me because I've been there now for 11 years. But even 11 years ago, 
I could see where the market was going. I could see that in the consulting and valuation world, a greater level of sophistication was required, better access to better data was required, and a wider range of skill sets was required in order to properly service clients. So at CBRE, they gave me the opportunity to kind of be an entrepreneur, to basically start or re-kick a business, restructure a business that was in place at CBRE, kind of act like an entrepreneur, have the autonomy largely of an entrepreneur, but with the benefit of this huge global platform underneath me, which allowed me to access expertise in, in, in different geographies, different asset types. It just brought a whole, a whole host of new tools to my toolkit. And over the last you know, decade, not just me, I've got a great team in the valuation group at CBRE, but we built that into a fairly significant national presence. We've got about 80 people in Canada. We've grown our revenue every year for the last 11 years. We had a record year last year. We'll have a record year this year. So it's, it's been fun. It's been great. I think what we do has been reasonably well received by our clients, which is my biggest goal. But that's sort of the general arc of my career. It's been in consulting from the beginning. And I'm a person who is very curious by nature, not just in real estate, but in almost anything. And the best appraisers, the best consultants that I've met tend to be people who ask a lot of questions and ask a lot of good questions and are not shy about asking questions. And they're also very proactive in learning about what I call the color and the nuance of the market, which you don't really learn at, you know, getting a real estate MBA. You don't really learn at, at university. It really has to be kind of in the field. And because there's so much that impacts the market today, and it's not just pure economics, it can be social issues. It can be, you know, the affordability issue that we, we talked about briefly before we started. There's just so much out there that can impact a building's value, its performance, its liquidity, its desirability. And I just like the fact that we're able to spend a lot of time processing all of those issues and trying to make sense of them and make sense of them in a way that's valuable to our clients. So, so. What's the hardest part of your job? You know, managing people is challenging. And I don't mean challenging necessarily in a, in a negative way. I, I care an awful lot about everyone that I work with. And if you legitimately care about all of those people and you've got 80 of them that you interact with each day, that can be challenging, especially when you go through a very stress-filled period like the pandemic, where we had some people with young kids, some people with, with older parents, same as every other company out there. But I think making sure as best I can to ensure that all of the people that I work with have a good career path, are engaged, are doing well, are happy, we like to have a culture that is fun and, and family-oriented as, as, as best it, it can be. But I think that challenge of trying to make the professional lives of the people that I work with as good as possible, that's kind of challenging. Waking up every day and thinking about how do we differentiate our offering from other offerings, especially in the appraisal world, which at times is very commoditized. That's challenging, but it's also fun. 
And I've said this before, I'm not sure people believe me, but almost every day on my commute into work, in one way or another, I am thinking about what can we do to be better? How do we move the yardsticks forward? It might only be a yard at a time, sometimes it's more, but that continual process of thinking about how do you get better is a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. That may have answered my next follow-up question, which was, personally, what's the most rewarding part of your job? The work itself, actually. And I, uh, that might sound nerdy, but I have a huge amount of pride when we take on something that's either difficult or big or sprawling, or, and we do a great job with it. So if you asked me 20 years ago, it would have been you know, something that I personally worked on, researched, wrote, communicated to a client, and was just extremely proud of the work that I did. That's very satisfying. Today, it would be some of that, but it would also be just the work that the entire group does is really rewarding. So it's, it's, it's really about what we produce every day and trying to ensure that it's not just the commodity, because if I did nothing but push commodity products out the door... I wouldn't work here. I would do something else. So I think the fact that we're recognized as doing good work, we're recognized as being insightful and helping our clients, I find that immensely rewarding. The market outlooks that I do are difficult and time-consuming, and they're also challenging in their own way, but they're equally rewarding because you have, in that case, the luxury, well, not really the luxury because it's done in my spare time, but you do have the luxury of sitting back and thinking about the market in a way that during the rest of the year, it's sometimes hard to do that. Oh, you just mentioned it there. Something unique to your position over the last 11 years is you're the very public face evaluation as well. You're on a ton of panels at the forums, a lot of the breakfasts. For Aaron and I doing the podcast, part of the benefit we get is it forces us to clarify our thoughts on an issue because you're about to speak publicly on it. Do you get the same out of public speaking doing your regular panel presentations and market outlook breakfast? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It, it sharpens your thinking. To me, the process of thinking something through and then translating it into written words, just that process sharpens my thought process. We have the benefit of a, of a huge and, and really good national research group. So sometimes there will be pieces of data, there will be pieces of research that I can kind of weave into something. It always surprises me that when you speak to people in, in the market who do things that are very specific, they might be a broker, they might be a selling broker, they might be uh, a leasing broker, they could be in a lender. We tend to work in very specific rules. And I think most people are focused as they should be on their specific role and, and the lane that, we're, that they're in. The opportunity to think about issues and give them a little more time and more thought, speak to people about it, research it properly, that's really helpful. So when I do these things that I've had a few people say, you're very natural at it. it it's, I'm natural because I prepare a lot. And in preparing, you learn more about the subject matter that you're speaking about. And if you're doing that continually, it, it, it builds up and, and you end up with sort of this reservoir of hopefully experience that's helpful. I was debating as you were talking there, Paul. I was thinking, I don't know if I want to go here or not. And we're going to, we're, I, now I've done it. I'm here, so I got to go. <laughs> Let's I, go. I think it's Let's just interesting. Go. And only I'm, as we're, I mean, we just met, but I'm trying to read the room, so to speak, get a sense of who you are. And I, I think this is an okay question. So um, 
As a lender, of course, we rely on appraisals. Lots and lots of different parts of our industry rely on appraisals. And there, there's, unfortunately, I would say, a bit of a degradation, if that's the right word, of just the quality of appraisals over time. And I, I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine from another lender just about, you know, they participate in the U.S. where it's all U.S. lenders order the U.S. Yes. The, the appraisers. And so you have a different motivation from the appraisal side. You're clearly, you're nodding your head as I'm talking through this. You know exactly where I'm going and what, <laughs> I, what I'm kind of alluding to. What is your thoughts on that? And, and are you challenged by it? Because I mean, you're trying to convey value because you're not a commodity, but that's really challenging when a lot of your competitors are, are commodity-based. Yeah. First of all, I'm outraged by the question. <laughs> okay, good. Glad. That's what I was looking for. My rider specifically said he wouldn't ask about this. No, I mean, you touch on, on some issues that are bang on. In the U.S., the borrower has almost nothing to do with the appraisal process, and that's done that goes back to 1997, I believe, and it was really meant to separate the borrower from the appraiser and make sure there's no undue influence on the appraiser. Did something happen in 1997 specifically that uh, triggered yeah, it? Yeah, it, it, it was the, um, between 1991 and 1995, there was a pretty brutal real estate recession in North America. There was concern about appraisal regulation back then. So in the late 90s, they introduced a whole bunch of additional regulation to ensure that the appraisal community was doing what they should be doing. And in Canada, that's not the case. In Canada, a borrower will typically engage the appraiser and the appraisal shows up at at a lender's desk one day. And you would think that inherent in that process is a lot of opportunity for conflict and for undue influence. And you know, I'd be lying if I said that that has never happened in the appraisal community or that it doesn't still happen. I think it is more of an issue, quite frankly, once you go down the tree a little bit in terms of overall quality. And in Canada, I think there's an understanding, there should be hopefully amongst the larger appraisal groups, that if you have, if you're pushing out a number that is simply incorrect because you're being pressured to do it, that's a real slippery slope that's almost impossible to extricate yourself from. You sacrifice and compromise your integrity. You become known as somebody who will just give somebody a number and then you don't have a career. Maybe you make a fair amount of money, but like, who cares? You don't have a career. You don't have integrity. And that's not something that we've ever wanted. So it's interesting that in this environment, rather than there being pressure on us to move values up, if anything, over the last year, our institutional clients and our, our you know, lenders, there's probably been more pressure to increase cap rates more, reduce values. That's definitely been a change from pre-COVID. I'm happy to hear that. That was one part. The other part is just there's the, the cost too, though. I mean, part of the challenge we're seeing is, you know, you're seeing appraisals that are very, very cheap. <laughs> yeah. You can't put a lot of time and energy into it. So whether the intentions are true and honest Ultimately, there's just not enough research done to absolutely substantiate whatever value you're proposing at the yeah, end. Yeah, the, the fee compression has been ridiculous. And the requirements that we have to produce ever more sophisticated values is is very real. You know, the mitigating factor is that over the last 10 years, we've been able to employ technology in a much bigger way. We're much more efficient in how we get all this stuff done. You know, 20 years ago, if we had to do... a a 200 building portfolio, you know, that might be eight weeks of work. You know, today we could probably do it in 10 days if we had to. So technology has had a huge impact. And again, the larger firms 
with a little more capital to spend and invest have, have taken advantage of that. But yes, you are right. In many cases, appraisers are buying work by quoting ridiculously low fees. And from what I've seen, I don't, I don't see all of the work, but an awful lot of that work is not worth the fee that they're charging and might not even be worth half of that fee. So I think if you're engaging appraisers, that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, we obviously at our end of the uh, business, we see a lot of appraisals and there's a really broad spectrum in the quality of the work. Yeah. So yeah, we, we hear what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. Let's tap into this, this long history of evaluation and, and thinking about about real estate. Before we hit record, we were talking about what's top of mind for your clients and, the, and what uh, they're spending most of their time thinking about. What's the most common question you're getting now? But hazard, hazard a guess, it might be, what's a cap rate mean right now? I don't know. <laughs> we're <laughs> in a interesting time, rates. but uh, I, yeah, what's coming up in your world? I think the, um, you know, the two or three questions that come up repeatedly are, you know, number one, you know, how do you interpret this new higher interest rate environment? What do you think that means for next year? What does that mean for values? What does that mean for cap rates? So a lot of discussion around price discovery, around an operating environment that is very much different than what we've seen over the last 30 years, where basically interest rates did nothing but go down and cap rates did nothing but go down. So that's one question. Where are cap rates? Where are they going? The other question that or series of questions that we get almost daily relates to the office market. And it's really just trying to figure out what the hell is going on and what's real and what's not real, trying to penetrate the noise. Because if you, uh, you know, I don't like social media very much in general. I think it's a, in general a terrible thing. <laughs> There's some useful aspects to it, I guess. But even in the social media world, in the LinkedIn world, the discussion around remote work and, and, and the office space, you know, at times is just I'd say ridiculous. And I think for a lay person, it's hard to separate fact from fiction. So that issue of what's really happening with remote work, what are tenants really looking to do? How can landlords ensure that their buildings remain competitive? What kind of amenities are required? How do you underwrite rent? All those sorts of things around the office sector we have a discussion on almost daily. And I'd say in the last 30 years, I can't think of another sector that's been harder to interpret than the office world in today's mm -hmm. environment. So office generates a lot of questions. On the industrial side, we're asked continually, you know, how long can this party continue just because things have been so strong? And on the multifamily side, Increasingly, we're getting questions about concerns over regulatory risk, whether the federal government or another level of government might bring in something, you know, rent control, vacancy decontrol, or even taxing companies differently. That threat is hanging over the sector, and that seems to be the big topic of discussion. So mainly those categories, general economics, the office sector, the industrial sector, how long does that party continue? And then on the multifamily side, which seems really strong and robust right now, you know, what about some of these potential clouds on the horizon? Well, let's maybe jump into one of those a little bit more. And I'll, I'll pick the interest rates because, of course, that's really, yeah, very relevant course, to Aaron. Yeah. I watched the CBRE lenders roundtable. I think it was earlier this week. A bunch of interesting stuff came out. I thought it was really great. But uh, there, the strong position is, is that we're over the hump of uh, interest rates and we should see with some erratic up and downs, general 
trend down, down 17 down. basis points today. By yeah, the way. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, coming true as we speak. But who's counting? Um, are, are you of that view that we're over the hump on interest rates? I know that uh, so many different things can impact it, but I think it depends on how you define over the hump. And I don't think we're there yet. You know, we've had a few discussions with Benjamin Tall recently, and Ben spoke here yesterday. His position is that he thinks there will be another raise in December maybe 50 basis points, maybe even lower because they've been trending I think the market's got a quarter point baked in at 80% probability or something like Uh, that. And and that sounds reasonable to me. You know, his position is that Bank of Canada will likely hold that for the balance of the year. They can't begin to ease off on rates too soon or they'll have a resurgence of, of inflation. So I don't disagree with that assessment. I think that the chance that inflation will be stickier than people think and take a little longer to wrestle down to 2% is very real. And so I think we could be... It's not a bell curve. It doesn't just go up and come down the it same does not. way, right? So, I, you know, this, this interest rate environment could be here for a little longer than, than we think. You know, I'm certainly not in the doomsday category of, of thinking that, I mean, every day I read something about how the economy is going to blow up. I, I certainly don't subscribe to that theory I do not subscribe to the theory that we'll go from 8% inflation to two in six months and then the world will go back to the way it was before. I don't think that's going to happen. I think supply chain challenges will prove to be more difficult than people realize to to kind of unwind. So I, I think there's a very real threat that we have this weak economic backdrop for even longer than some people are saying. Having said that, What we're going through right now is a cyclical downturn. We've had them before. We'll have them again. I think you, in our world, you have to keep an eye to the long term. You have to keep an eye to fundamentals. And if you're an owner or an investor, you have to continue to execute on your strategy because most people don't get rich in real estate anymore by timing the market perfectly, getting in and exiting. It's usually a longer term execution of a a solid strategy. And so... While everyone is talking about interest rates and inflation and a possible recession now, and that's all a legitimate discussion to have, I think we do need to keep one eye to the longer term because commercial real estate is, is a long game. The theme I'm picking up from this, this conference is if there's some certainty in the market, regardless of what that certainty is, that, that's fine because there's a plenty of capital out there that's ready to move, but there's too much uncertainty right now of what the future looks like. So they're kind of pens down is is out of the language. But if you knew, you could just say, okay, listen, rates are going to be here and they're going to stay here for the next 18 months. Okay, everybody's going to start. Okay, I can can pencil in what that looks like going forward. But but right now, unfortunately, you just can't pencil anything in. So therefore, yeah, I I think one of the questions is, you know, in periods like this before where we've had illiquidity or where you have a bid ask significant gap emerging, the psychology that emerged in those markets was was largely owners or vendors who felt that their property was worth $10 and you'd have buyers who thought the property was worth $7 and they couldn't meet in the middle. And the position of the owners traditionally was, why would I sell at a significant discount now if I think next year things will be better? And so you you end up with this impasse. The question for me is how long can that impasse continue? I don't think both owners or buyers can remain on the sidelines forever. At some point, capital's got to be deployed and you have to earn a return on it. So although people are cautious and it's pens down right now, and it has been since basically the the middle of the summer, 
a huge question mark is just how long does that continue? You know, if it lasts another 12 months, I don't think we've seen that before. So I think that's where some of the uncertainty comes in for sure. So and this is adjacent to that concept, but, you know, a little bit different. That vendor bid-ask difference, it really comes down to a, in lots of different ways, but I'm going to ask very generally, just the spread above interest rates for cap rates. What is it supposed to be? And how do you have that conversation with, with clients when you're talking about what it should look like? Because I know on the lending community, we kind of go, well, it should be 100 basis points. And so if you're all in coupons, four and a half, you should be paying five and a half for it. I know that's not the way it works in reality, but... Yeah. Well, first of all, there should be a positive spread, number yeah. one. We are seeing some deals with negative leverage. You know, I haven't seen since like 1989 or 1990. And I think that's a dangerous way to buy real estate. And people who do it are banking on the fact that they can kind of grow their way to positive leverage. Yeah, a stabilization play is different. But if you're buying a stabilized Correct. asset, we see guys, well, it's, yeah, there's, it, it's a stabilization play, but there's eight years left right. in the lease. Like, well, hold on a second, right? Yeah. And I would have said, if, if, if you look back over the last, I don't know, 15 years, maybe somebody would have said a 200 basis point spread or a 300 basis point spread over 10-year Canada's. I don't know that you can be that generalized about it. It depends on the sector, the attractiveness of that sector, and what part of the cycle they're in. So... Pre-COVID, early 2020, before we had heard of COVID, with the investment market so incredibly frothy, especially in industrial multifamily, really in everything, but mainly in those two two groups, you know, the spread shrunk quite a bit. And the desire... It was still positive, though. It was still positive, but the desire to increase your allocation to those desirable asset classes outweighed the requirement for a bigger spread. But it was still positive. You know, where we are right now, this is one of the reasons why, you know, cap rates have to go up because for the most part, buyers will not accept a 5% interest rate and a cap rate that's four. That just doesn't work. Doesn't work. In in 88, 89, last time you would have seen that, my history might be a little bit off because I know obviously by 1991, 92, everything's a disaster. But were people buying then, ten back then? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> were people buying with negative leverage back then for the same reason they are now? They believe their rents are going to catch up and get them back on side within a year or two? Yes. Okay, so yeah. it was the identical yeah. Yeah. path of where we're... Okay. That's right, that's right. And then we had the double whammy. I mean, in the early 90s, in, in, you know, in Toronto, we built you know, a gazillion square feet of office space at the exact wrong time and sort of everything converged at once and you ended up with no rental growth at all. But yeah, 1989, the world looked good. I was young as well, but the world looked good. Real estate looked good. And you had a number of buyers who were buying with maybe negative cash flow in year one and year two. But as leases rolled, the expectation was that you'd grow into a positive return. We really hadn't seen any of that since that time. We're now beginning to see some of it. And you'll hear some brokers even talk about months to positive leverage, which is a term (laughs) I hadn't heard before. That's a new one to me as well right now. (laughs) And I, I think it really applies primarily to industrial and multifamily where you do still have legitimate, robust near-term rental growth. But for every other sector, it just does not not work at all. Particularly office. And let's go there next. I think that is the most interesting. How do you see this playing itself out? It's too early. Totally agree it's too early. How many years, and I think it is years, is it going to take for us to really understand what the future of office is? Yeah. First of all, I agree with you. We're in, we're in early days and we don't know the answer to that yet. I think most of the material decisions that 
occupiers are making about their space, they're making it when their leases roll over. I don't think anyone's making any radical changes midterm. So if you assume that most of the changes will manifest themselves as leases roll over, you know, leases roll over every year. And if we're, we're starting at the pandemic or in 2020, I think you could argue it could easily be another 10 years before we fully understand the impact of all this. I'd say it's more like three to five before we have real clarity on it. CBRE, our global workplace team, I mean, we work with thousands of large occupiers around the world. And almost weekly, I ask people in that group, what are you seeing from those occupiers? What are the trends? Are they increasing space? Are they decreasing space? What are their issues? And the answer I get back every single week is, it's a little bit of everything. There is no consensus yet. So I think we're going to be in that world for the next little while. And the fact that there's now a recession and coupled with the fact that the technology sector is definitely not in expansion mode for the next few years, I think it'll take, it'll, it'll take years for the dust to fully settle. A new pandemic, four-day work weeks. I mean, what the heck? Right? Exactly, so exactly, much going exactly. On. Now, now, having said that, you know, if we go back again to the early 90s, when we built too much office space and the office sector didn't do well, we ended up with net effective rents in downtown Toronto that were zero or even negative, which meant tenants would just pay a little like bit Calgary of, across the of country. TNO. Exactly. Today, in a market like Toronto, net effective rents are definitely lower than they were pre-pandemic, but not crazy lower. I think it's a legitimate question to say, if the office market sucks as much as people say that it does, then why aren't rents lower than what they are? Why is vacancy in Vancouver 7%, which is pretty good vacancy rate. So, and then there's the issue of, you know, I've had people say to me, well, New York City has a very high vacancy rate. Isn't that an indication of what will happen here? Over 50% of the office inventory in New York was built before World War II. It's the exact kind of product that nobody wants to go into today. So, I'll go back to my earlier comments about you've really got to separate fact from fiction, from opinion, from personal experience. From hearsay. And I think, and hearsay. And as you begin to separate all that, and if, as you begin to really focus on the facts as they emerge, again, I, I think it'll be years before that story really clarifies. If only there was a podcast where people could go and listen to experts about these things. <laughs> the 300 episodes dig through. Do you want to jump into our last topic, which multifamily regulatory risk? Rents in virtually every city have gone up dramatically. Most pronounced, I think Toronto might be top of the heap. I mean, well, you I could ask the expert sitting right here. And it's great for a pro forma. You know, when you're looking at Excel spreadsheet and you're doing valuations and we're structuring loans, it's great because there's additional NOI. But of course, the reality is for every single unit that you tack on $300 a month to, there's a real human being trying to cover that uh, difference and they probably didn't uh, you know, get a pay raise to, to yep. match it. Which then leads, of course, to regulatory risk in apartments. It is real, especially when you're seeing growth you know, in the 15, 20% range. It's, it's mind boggling. At this point, I don't think there's been too much other than a few whispers out of any official channels, but what's your view on the real potential of that risk coming through? Well, you're right. I'm, I'm conflicted on this issue as well, because as, as, as a Canadian, I, I just don't like to see what's happening with the affordability issue around the country. And I think it's going to be a very real negative issue for us just as a society. If you take that argument down to the multifamily level, those huge jumps in rents have been 
quite beneficial to anyone who owns multifamily. And even the affordability issue with single-family houses and condos and semis, the world that we're in now in Canada is increasingly Canadians are being priced out of any kind of home ownership, even condos, but at least that's the cheapest available option. They're being priced out of any of that, and the only option that they have is to rent. So it has been beneficial to apartment owners, but as you pointed out, this type of hyper-rental growth always ends up on the front page of newspapers across the country. And when it ends up on the front page of newspapers, you can bet politicians will... It's a very emotional will, topic. Will, will it's take, very emotional, right. right? And most of the articles that show up, quite frankly, are bullshit, but they are, they are emotional. And then And the narrative is these big, bad, faceless institutions are renovicting people and they're the ones causing all this trouble. Now, that's nonsense. It's That's not what's happening here. But the federal government, going back at least a year ago, campaigned on a one of their one of their housing promises was that they wanted to stop the financialization of the residential sector, what they call the financialization of it. And they characterized that as, you know, the Blackstones of the world and the pension funds of the world coming in and buying all all of this residential real estate. And what they were talking about doing, and my understanding is they're still talking about doing it, was taxing apartment owners in a different way. And I think the phrase that they used was, we're going to tax excess profits. Now, A, I don't know what the hell excess profits are. (laughs) Who draws that line? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And secondly, you know, what the government has to figure out is long-term, we need to build a lot more. Everyone knows that. And they should be encouraging the development of new supply. Short term, they're trying to react to these stories in the Toronto Star. And if you're trying to react to those stories and build a beneficial case to your your voters, if you're a politician, you're probably not going to undertake the solution that might take 10 years to have an effect. You're going to pick the politically expedient, which is usually, all right, here, here come rent controls, mm-hmm. or we'll tax you at a higher rate, or we'll do this, or we'll do that. None of that will end up being good for tenants or renters, and it definitely won't be good for the development of new supply. So they're talking about these sorts of things because I think clearly they need to act in some way. My fear is rather than rolling up their sleeves, working with the private sector, and coming up with a much more comprehensive long-term solution, they're going to pick the short-term solution. And that I don't think that'll be good for us. What's your comprehensive long-term solution? I don't know that there's an easy one. I mean, I would start with changing our immigration program to target more skilled labor and skilled trades because, you know, one of the things, we've been talking about it more over the last couple of years, but until two years ago, no one talked about the fact that if you looked at the skilled trades in building the condos in this city, they're all in their 60s. And as they retire, they're not being replaced. So if we had policy tomorrow that said in Ontario, we're going to build 1.5 million new homes over the next 10 years. That's nice. That's lovely. We can't do it. So I would start with getting tradespeople. We've got the money to do it, just not the people to do it. We do not have the people to do it. And that's a huge constraint on development. And I think that has to get addressed really quickly. 
And then other than that, I would, maybe this is too Pollyanna, but I, I would say, like, put the politics aside. This is a, a real issue to Toronto. The health of cities like Vancouver and Toronto will be compromised if we can't figure this out. And they'll both be lousy cities to live in if teachers can't live there and cops can't live there and nurses can't live there. So I'd like to see sort of a longer-term vision, a private-public partnership. We spend a lot of money in this country on, on, on some crazy things. You know, maybe let's figure out the funding for, maybe we need a reintroduction of that subsidized building program. There, there are different things that can be done. I do agree, or I would say, there's absolutely no silver bullet, though. There's no panacea. There's no easy solution. I'll throw in throw in as of right zoning on top of all of that too, just to, as a, as a, another component to help contribute. Right, NIMBYism is alive and well in this country, and and it has a much more negative impact than the the average person would realize. Mm-hmm. That's a real issue as yeah. well. We're almost out of time here. Thanks very much, Paul, for, take, for taking the time to do this. Do you want to have a just wrap up thoughts? Let me just go allow you to just kind of, if you want to just kind of, what would be your, your final thoughts and just the whole overall tone of what you're hearing today at the real estate forum or just your general, your general opinion? I was here yesterday morning. I only saw the uh, morning session and Blake Hutchison said something, which is a sentiment that I've articulated many, many times over the years. And his comment was, it's easy to get caught up in the negativity of what's going on in the world. You know, got a war in Europe, got a lunatic in Russia, got all kinds of things happening, economic slowdown, and it's easy to get caught up in that. But he reminded the audience that Canada is a pretty great place to be, whether it's natural resources, potable water, the most stable banking system in the world, very sophisticated institutional ownership. We don't have too much leverage. We don't have too many people who are in debt up to their eyeballs. We have a sane, practical immigration policy. And as frustrating maybe as our politicians can be at times, they're not as nuts as most of them in other countries. And I think his point was over the long term in a very volatile world, the attractiveness of Canada just in general will only increase. And I, I think it's that was a really good reminder that, yeah, we're going through an economic downturn now. It won't be pretty. It'll be bumpy. It'll be all the things we think it's going to be. But we're incredibly lucky to live in this country. We're incredibly lucky to work in the real estate industry in this country. And one of the reasons that values in Canada whether it was the global financial crisis or during COVID or even now, one of the reasons prices have not fallen in the way that they have in other parts of the world is because of this incredible foundation that we have as a country. And I I just thought that was a great reminder. That would be my final thought that, you know, watching the news and reading the newspapers isn't very pleasant today, but compared to other countries, you know, we're, we're just really, really blessed and I think if you're an investor and you are focused on stability and safety and security and transparency and democratic governments and all those sorts of things, I just think this is a great country to be. So that would be my 
I my like final it. thought. The worst thing about Canada is the winters, and that's pretty great. Right? <laughs> if that's yeah. all we have to complain <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great closing note. We are out of time. I want to thank, of course, First National uh, for powering the podcast and the Toronto Real Estate Forum for hosting us here today and running the speaker video series sponsored by Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, Rycom, and Turner and Townsend. Most importantly, though, Paul, thanks for coming by to share your, uh, your expertise with us today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we discuss the conversation we just had with Paul Morissuti. That was interesting. I mean, of course it was. I mean, if everybody, if you are in the industry of commercial real estate, you are familiar with Paul. He's a regular panelist, regular keynote speaker, very active in our community, and has a long history, family or otherwise, in commercial real estate. Well, perfect podcast guest for that reason. I mean, he's well-spoken, and he spent the last however many years of his career learning how to drop significant value in front of people that need to make real estate decisions. So that just lines up exactly with what we want to accomplish in the podcast. And he's one of the few, there's a handful of guests that we've had that kind of go, oh, I can talk about anything. It was a fun way to plan for that. The interesting, I mean, we'll just skip the economic conversation that we had. Let's just jump into one of the things that I thought was telling or hear back a little bit just about the conversation with Paul. What was interesting about the conversation with Paul is that as an appraiser, his business is just to basically observe the market and then tell you what the market is doing. He doesn't necessarily have an opinion one way or the other, right? He's not promoting any particular angle whatsoever. That's literally not the purpose. Like the point of appraisers or valuers is to just tell you what's going on. This is what it is. These are the numbers. And so it was an interesting point that whatever topic we were on, he was just stating what he was seeing without any particular spin on it. And so to that point, how long is it going to take for us to understand office? Ah, three to five years or longer. We're going to have to see a role basically in every lease and position to really have an understanding of what's going on. Which is a very fair assessment because we also run into a lot of people, and I don't mean in the podcast, but I mean, you know, just in your day-to-day real estate life, who this year, when we're all just coming back to the office, are ready to declare the new permanent situation that has been finalized and written in stone, and they've got a clear view of it, and this is what it is. And yeah, I mean, this you know, office is super murky right now. There's obviously people like him out there looking for early indicators, but you know he recognizes that it's way too early to call the game. He mentioned this, and so sorry for our listeners, we didn't get to it because he talked about the party of industrial. Is the party over? We don't know because we didn't ask him. So <laughs> yeah. moving on to multifamily, we talked about multifamily and I thought, that, again, this is just a very sober observation, right? I mean, multifamily is, is strong. There's an affordability challenge, which has positive and negative consequences, socially negative. But, you know, of course, if you're an owner of apartments, there's some revenue growth going on. But there's major political risk. I think he was very honest about just, that's a big challenge. If you're a big apartment owner and operator, I think you just have to take that risk, but you got to be very aware of it. Vacancy control being the boogeyman. Or inclusionary zoning or something. But vacancy control, of course, just has this immediate stomp on supply. You feel the air leaving the room every time somebody brings it up as a serious option. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of people that think it is a very viable option to help with the challenge of affordability. And unfortunately, those are the people that often are the decision makers and the policymakers that have that opinion. Hmm, we're leaving this one on a sour note now. <laughs> Go lobby your local politician. Tell them, let them build. <laughs> it has one potential negative in that category, but there's a whole list of reasons why you'd want to own multifamily right now. Anyways, there's the high note. We've turned the ship around in our messaging. Thanks everybody for listening to the very end. And Paul, it was great to have him on. I was really excited about him just because I've seen so many of his panels before and really been engaged with him as just an audience participant. 
as always, though, you know, one of the big benefits of the podcast is now I get to sit and ask them whatever I want. And we did. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.